his structural elucidation of THC was extremely important scientifically and extremely important in the chemical literature. But that wasn't really worthy of a Nobel Prize because, you know, other people had isolated it first and other people had talked about its structure. But then Rafi kind of came in and, and cleaned up all the previous work. But what certainly was notable was his work that they did after the discovery of THC and after they found out that it was the principal active component was how does it work? about cannabis is dedicated to providing reliable cannabis science education to anyone curious enough to learn to get access to free courses and other educational resources visit learn.cacpodcast.com and become a curious about cannabis member for free the curious about cannabis book provides an incredible crash course in cannabis science through over 500 pages of content filled with photos, activities, science experiments, games, and more to help guide you through your personalized cannabis education journey. This book has become a trusted textbook in colleges and universities across North America and is absolutely perfect for serious learners as well as cannabis educators, bud tenders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers. And special thanks to the many individuals, companies, and organizations that have helped Curious About Cannabis meet our mission of becoming the number one trusted source of cannabis science education on the planet. This includes organizations like Credo Science with Ethan Russo, The Conigma, Treadwell Farms, The Spellman Report with Kevin Spellman, The Workshop, Green Earth Medicinals, CBD National, Magnolia Botanicals, and more. Visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsors to learn about our sponsors and go show them some love for helping us spread cannabis science education far and wide to anyone curious enough to learn. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. Life mysterious and ephemeral. Breathtaking, yet fierce and unyielding. Grounding, yet transcendent. It's a curious thing. Let's explore it together. Isn't life curious? Available at isn'tlifecurious.com or wherever you experience podcasts. And now, back to the show. Hey everybody, this is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So this is a very special episode. Um, I'm here with my friend Mark Chaldone. Um, and we wanted to do a bit of a um, kind of a tribute to Raphael Meshulam's life. As many of you know, um, it's been a little over a month or so now. Raphael Meshulam passed away. And um, one thing that Mark and I have in common is kind of a, a fascination with the story around 
cannabis science research, cannabinoid research, and obviously Raphael Mishulam was a huge, huge part of that story. And so we wanted to take time today over the next hour and a half or so to really just um, unpack, because I think a lot of people haven't been exposed to the full story. They hear little tidbits about what Raphael Mishulam did and contributed to, but I don't think they've really been exposed to sort of the kind of grander story and where his work fits in that grander story. So I'm hoping that we can do it justice today. Um, Mark, thanks so much for being willing to join me and, and try to take on this endeavor. It's a big story to tell. It sure is. <laughs> Let's go all the way back. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I'll say to anyone listening to this, we have a sort of a deep dive on cannabinoid um, science history you can check out that Mark's already done. It's about three hours long. Um, it's not focused on Raphael Mishulam by any means, but it's if you're interested in sort of more details around some of the story we're going to be talking about, um, I recommend listening to that. It's, it's really, really good. But let's kind of go back. I think... Um, you know, really, the beginning of modern cannabinoid research, as we think of it today, systematized, you know, research, um, really started to take off in like the mid 1800s or so, um, in terms of uh, techniques and things being applied that are in any way reminiscent of what we do today. Um, so let's start there. What can you tell us about you know, the mid to late 1800s and what sort of set the stage for all of the research that would take place in the 1900s that Rafi was a part of? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of it um, stemmed from uh, a publication that was published by uh, uh, Sir William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, who was a medical doctor in England and was investigating the use of uh, what they called Indian hemp right. uh, for its medici medicinal properties. And it is interesting. He, he, in this paper, I, I it was published in like the 1840s. Um, that's right around the time when I think people started thinking that there was real medicinal properties to cannabis. And so I yeah. think it's been used for a long time by several cultures and i guess banned by other cultures right because they, they didn't like the state of mind that yeah prohibition is is not new yeah <laughs> right but like i i think i i want to say that maybe it was the greeks that were involved but it, um there's a uh jason you probably know this this uh, excellent um uh, youtube video uh by chris rice on the lost history of cannabis which talks about um uh, cannabis use in pre-recorded history, as well as, um, you know, just an ancient history. And there were several cultures uh, in, in the East, most certainly China and uh, some of the other um, uh, uh, Asian countries where, where cannabis was, was used um, for not only uh, it's medicinal properties, but certainly for uh, material properties right. for um, fiber, um, food, uh, uh, seed oil. Um, so there, there had been, you know, quite a bit of use of cannabis for a long period of time, but it, it hadn't really been studied medically um, uh, and, and really medical sciences in the, in the early to mid 
1800s were were in their infancy yeah or, or at least modern medicine i guess you'd call it modern that's, yeah medicine. that's how i like to preface it just like sort of as we think of modern medicine today right yeah right but but a- anecdotally i think there was um stories handed down over the years and and mm-hmm. mishulam talks a little bit about this in in the movie the scientist which again is another excellent uh yeah. video on youtube that chronicles Raphael's career and contributions in cannabis. But I, I think that like when people started um, sp- specifically needing it for particular uh, medical conditions, the one story that he talks about was um, an ancient story that I think dated back to one of the early civilizations. I want to say Mesopotamia, but I don't quote me on that. It was early civilization and maybe it was in Persia. I Might think. have been the Scythians or the Persians. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was a king who had epilepsy or some royal member of the royal family who had epilepsy. And they, they knew that that cannabis was effective uh, in treating that. Uh, they didn't know why. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they knew that it had to be taken uh, every day or constantly to treat the disease. But I, I think that's, that's when people started really, I, I think when they read O'Shaughnessy's paper and t- talked about treating different maladies with, with cannabis, it started gaining popularity uh, in the mid to late 1800s in, in the UK. And there's a famous story about um, Queen Victoria um, who uh, used cannabis to control menstrual cramps and menstrual pain um, and other, you know, things like that. I mean, if you read O'Shaughnessy's paper, he, he talks about uh, giving uh, doses of cannabis extract to dogs too yeah. and looking yeah. at, you know, what it puts them to sleep or makes them happy or stuff like that. So that paper was really enlightening to a lot of people because he actually took extracts and in, in the best way possible in the mid 1800s was able to measure some type of cause and effect of the extract itself. Again, this is before molecular sciences. Exactly, so really, exactly. They had no clue what was in there. And so later on in that century, in the 1800s, people started investigating, you know, could we actually isolate this? And typically in a, um, uh, 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 extract or, or what was really called a tincture tincture mm-hmm. typically was an alcoholic extract where you right. just boil off the alcohol. And then what's left is kind of like everything that's alcohol soluble. And so alcoholic extracts were, were quite common. And there were some early investigations that looked at, you know, geez, what is this that's in there that's causing this? But it wasn't until um, the pioneering work, we talk about this in the deep dive. This is a very important um, finding, which was the the group in 1896 at Cambridge who first vacuum distilled um, cannabis extracts that they obtained from um, extracting charas. So we all know charas is a a traditional form of cannabis um, that is um, 
just the um, sticky exudate. I think mm -hmm. uh, you can almost think of it like finger hash or exactly. just yeah. the way yeah, people will just hash. sort of wipe the oil off off the plant with their hands and they kind of roll it together in a little ball. Yep. And, and, and so those kinds of um, preparations are probably high in cannabinoid acids because it's the cannabinoid acids that are made by the plant. But then when they go to vacuum distill it, obviously it's going to be something that's going to thermally decarboxylate. So what they're going to get is a um, fraction out of that distillation is going to be completely decarboxylated. Yeah. And um, I have a particular perspective on that work because when I um, was making cannabis distillate and I measured the boiling point, um, the, the, the boiling point is something that's often misrepresented in the lay literature, right? We've discussed yeah. this before, yeah. right, Jason? So <clears throat> when, when Meshulam first isolated uh, THC uh, in the Delta-9 form and then reported the boiling point, uh, that boiling point was under a vacuum pressure of, I think, 0.05 I think that's right, uh, yeah. tor or 0.05 millimeters of mercury, which describes the depth of the vacuum. So when you when you distill something under vacuum, it distills at a much lower temperature than it yep. would distill if it were just at regular atmospheric pressure. And so uh, often the THC boiling point gets reported as the boiling point that Meshulam reported in 1964 in his landmark paper, but they forget to mention that it's under a vacuum pressure of 0.05 torr. So if you try heating cannabis extract up to 155, not much is going to distill. <laughs> right. You have to put it under that vacuum. That vacuum again lowers the boiling point because you're 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 decreasing the energy needed to transition a vapor into the a, a liquid into the vapor phase. So um, I believe that Woods, Spivy, and Easterfield, um, even though they report it as cannabinol, uh, canna from cannabis and all, because they knew that there was a hydroxyl group. So right. there was no descriptive analytical method that they could use. They just had to kind of take observations based on how the molecules behave yep. and they could assign functional groups. And when they called it cannabinol, we know cannabinol is CBN, which is the fully aromatized derivative of THC. Um, they were confounded. The earlier researchers were confounded by THC's metastability. So when I call mm -hmm. it metastable, yeah. that means that it, it, it can be stable in certain forms, but in other ways or other conditions, it, it, it can uh, rearrange or decompose or change its molecular form. And, and um, the, the earlier researchers were confounded by this because, as we know, there's a single double bond in tetrahydrocannabinol, and that single double bond, whether it's between the 8 and the 9 carbon or the 9 and the 10 carbon or the 10 and 11, these are all just structural isomers of one another. And if given the opportunity, the energetics of that landscape is you could scramble that double bond and put it in any number of, of positions. And this is what we hear about when we talk about Delta 8 THC versus Delta 9, which is the naturally configured material. As it turns out, 
delta eight is thermodynamically preferred over the delta nine configuration. Yeah, so they've given the opportunity delta nine, which is what the plant makes, which is naturally occurring will isomerize to delta eight. So for that reason, I believe that the plant makes no delta eight THC. It makes no delta eight configured cannabinoids and any delta eight, which is found um, in analyzing cannabis extracts, I believe, this is my belief, is an artifact of the sampling method used uh, that is promoting isomerization to the more thermodynamically favored. Uh, that could just be heating the sample. It could be shaking the sample. There could be trace amounts of acid that can do that. But a, a, a slight amount of um, something acidic in, as an impurity could cause uh, isomerization of the naturally uh, occurring delta nine to go to delta eight. And it wasn't till uh, Robert, so, so the, the isolation of the extracts was done by Woods, Bivy and Easterfield reported in 1896. They had a follow-up paper four years later, trying to again, get some more identification around uh, the active ingredient. And what they did back then, Jason, because they didn't have NMR spectrometers right. and yep. HPLCs and, and mass specs and stuff like that. So what they often did is they derivatized compounds to make them into a known compound. And if you could trace it into a known compound, you could kind of figure out what the unknown was. And, and a, a typical reaction would be uh, something called nitration, where you boil something with nitric acid and you basically start decorating the molecule with these nitro groups. Well, the one thing that that does sometimes is it makes a crystalline derivative. And so you can yeah, imagine yeah. that if you're working with a very sticky goo and all of a sudden you treat it with some kind of reaction conditions like nitric acid, and now all of a sudden you get a, a crystalline solid that you could filter and take a melting point. Well, you could try to figure out what the starting material is based on solving what the what the what the structure was yeah. so a fellow by the name of robert sydney khan did a very very important series of papers in the early 1930s so about 30 years after the woods bivy and easterfield uh paper was out there and there was some other researchers uh looking at looking at cannabinoids or trying to figure out what the active ingredients in cannabis were there were some German groups that looked at it mm -hmm. uh, before World War II. Um, but a lot of what we know about by just looking at the, the literature is that um, Robert Sidney Kahn in his first paper in 1930 looked at the Woods, Bivy and Easterfield data and said, well, you know, I think maybe it's not cannabinol he was the first one to propose the structure. Actually, the structure of cannabinol was was not fully known, not fully proposed, but right. yeah. he kind of sort of put it together based on some of the degradation products that they observed, had some theories about how these went together. And in four back-to-back -back papers, 1930, 1931, 1932, and 1933, he basically figured out what that, what the molecular formula, uh, well, he figured out the molecular formula for, for CBN, which was yeah. based on the Woods, Bivy, and Easterfield data, but also figured that 
there's a tetrahydro compound that's converting over to CVN and that's confounding the the analysis to to you know yeah, yeah. obscure actually what is the active ingredient when they first thought it was cannabinol um, one of the reasons why they were able to isolate cannabinol is because when you make the acetate of yes, cannabinol yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a crystalline solid right yeah, yeah. so they isolated that but it was in really really low yield and i think that yield is what tipped off robert mm-hmm. sydney khan to think you know no, what there should be more here yeah there's, there's other things in there right and so if you look at khan's papers and it's just wonderful to just look at each one of those four papers and you can see his evolution of thought that's to get him to where he finally, for the first time, identifies the structure and the formula of THC. And I think might be the first one to actually use the name tetrahydrocannabinol. Mm-hmm. So then after Khan, two very important uh, groups in, in very different areas. There was Alexander Todd mm-hmm. in, in, in the UK, and then there was Roger Adams in yes. Champaign-Urbana, uh, the University of Illinois. And, um, and, and so this set the stage for Meshulam to come in, because if you look at, if you look at the papers that, that Todd and Adams published, yep. um, this was just before the beginning of world war two. So you can imagine that, you know, things over in Europe, my God, right, uh, exactly. things are crazy. Go, go off the hook, but, um, this very, very important work was being done. And then when you look at Adams's work, so Roger Adams, the noted organic chemistry professor. I was going to say, it's worth noting, like Roger Adams is a a big deal in organic chemistry. He's huge. Yeah. He's huge because, you know, he, he had many graduate students and postdocs Mm -hmm. who ended up becoming professors at universities. So my generation of, 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 a PhD chemists and mm-hmm. graduate students, we were educated by the students who worked directly yeah, for Roger awesome. Adams. Yeah. So it, it, it's amazing. I think he's my chemical great grandfather through my lineage. But <laughs> if you look at like what, what the impact that that group of people has had on modern chemistry, it's amazing. It's the who's who Nobel prize winners, people who've invented billion-dollar pharmaceuticals and other other very, very valuable things through chemistry. Um, Roger Adams was actually a consultant at DuPont for many, many years yeah. and um, there was a very close relationship between the chemical industry and these academic uh, big guys. There's another guy named Carl Marvel, who is, a, again, very, very well-known chemist. These, these chemists were, were very influential in educating the next generation of professors that educated yes. people yeah. like me. So, Setting very, the foundation. Very yeah. And Jason, it's in that continuum that, you know, Mishulam existed is, you know, he didn't, he, he came in after Woods, Bivy and Easterfield did their, did their isolation after Robert Sidney Kahn fi- figured out the structure after, um, uh, Roger Adams, and if you look at Adams's papers from the 40s, you'll see structures there. I mean, he's got delta-8 and delta-7 drawn because 
they didn't have NMR spectroscopy to elucidate where the double bond was in yep. the molecule. So they were just sort of taking some guesses based on the degradation chemistry. Exactly, just how it but, was behaving. Yeah. Right, how, how it be behaved chemically. But recognize that as soon as you treat um, delta-9 with something like nitric acid or any strong acid, sulfuric acid, it's going to go to delta-8. So you're going to you're going to get fooled in thinking that delta eight was what you started with, but actually right, because right. delta nine is metastable. So so that confounded researchers. But the other thing that I found was really interesting, and you hear a lot about this these days because with the hemp um, bill, or, or I'm sorry, the far, yeah, farm yeah, bill the making farm bill. hemp legal, mm -hmm. there's a lot of this um, CBD that's being converted into THC as though it were a brand new thing but yeah this has been in the chemical literature since <laughs> 1940. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was first published in 1940 and then um Mishulam followed up later in the in the 60s and the 70s but it was really important because what Rafi recognized when when he came in so Rafi was and and he will humbly well, if he were still here, he would humbly admit yeah. that he stands on the shoulders of Todd. Oh, yeah, he writes Adams about it repeatedly. And of R.S. Khan. Well, and, and the way I know that is I've read, I've probably read about 100 of Rafi's papers. I yeah. think he's got like over 300 papers. I think I've read about 100 of them. And I can tell you, when you read the the literature that a scientist writes, when he's thinking about this and constantly turning it over in his head you really start to learn about the person yeah like i never met rafi uh we had uh several exchanges back and forth and i always just lit up when i saw that i had an email from rafael michelle yes. oh my yeah. god yeah stop all the presses let me read rafi's email so it was it was great that he had a respect for who I was, again, based on the fact that I'm a chemist, I could speak to him in a language of chemistry, which is a language yeah. of structure, a language of literature references, a language of really understanding all the work that's been done before you. Yeah. And all the work that's been done before me, well, that's the same work that's been done before Mishum, same work that's been done in, before everybody. It's this continuum of science. And, and the beautiful thing, I think, is that if you read Rafi's papers, he references Woods, Vivian Easterfield. He references Roger Adams and he references Robert Sidney Kahn and Alexander Todd because he was standing on their shoulders. Yeah. And, and Raphael was a good enough physical organic chemist to understand that, you know what, we're isomerizing this double bond. So let me isolate the active ingredient in the most gentle way possible to not isomerize the double bond. And now we can use this new tool, which was Let's nuclear magnetic resonance, which was a way of looking at the different magnetic signatures that, that different hydrogens have in organic molecules. And you could run an NMR spectrum and you could tell based on the peak shape mm -hmm. and based on where the peak position is, what kind of hydrogen. And so he was able to figure out that the delta nine configuration 
is the correct configuration that occurs in the plant. And so Raphael's big discovery here is not necessarily the first to isolate THC. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Wood and Easterfield did that. And if you look at if you look at Wood and Easterfield's boiling point data, which is just as good today as it was in 1896, it is spot on, Rafi's. Numbers, and there was a paper that actually came out, um, I think, a couple years ago, that also um, specifically addressed the boiling point issue and looked at the old literature, compared the, um, you know, like is this reporting at atmospheric pressure or under vacuum? And right. I can't remember the name of it, but I'll try to remember to throw it in the show notes because it's a. It came out after you and I did an episode talking about some of this stuff. And so yeah. now there is a like a review publication that tries to synthesize right. all of that. Um, thank goodness, because it is and, a mess. And what's the boiling point of THC? Spot on exactly what I had said in my article, which is yeah. it should be about 427 degrees C. And that's exactly what they came up with. And the beautiful thing is, so this is what, why the literature is so great. When you look in the literature, people are trying to, they're trying to write about the science they're doing to the best of their understanding. Yes, yeah. But as that frontier moves and we develop more and more understanding, now you can go back and look at their data and yeah. say, you know what? That wasn't cannabinol they isolated. That indeed was THC that they isolated. So then the first thing that well, they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, Raphael discovered THC. Well, he, he didn't discover THC in fact, he didn't even discover the, the structure of the formula. That we contribute yeah. to Robert Sidney Kahn. Yeah. The first to isolate was Wood Spivy and Easterfield. But what Mishulam did that was very, very important, and this can't be understated, was he used the new tool of yes. nuclear magnetic resonance, NMR, to, to correctly elucidate. Elucidate is the million-dollar word here. Yeah. To correctly elucidate the structure of the active ingredient taken from the plant. So if you read his, his uh, 1964 paper, he he takes hashish, which I think yep. he got from Lebanon. <laughs> he talks about it in his movie. It's really funny. And then he does a, uh, he column chromatographs it. Well, we know that if it's hash, it's most likely THCA, right? right. Not THC. Right. And then so he chromatographs it. So he separates out the minor cannabinoids and other things and just takes a, a fraction of what he believes is the major active ingredient. And then he, he took that material, distilled it, and then made a, um, a crystalline derivative, as often is the case. Yeah, um, yeah. If you could make a crystalline derivative and then you could purify by recrystallization, that's like making rock candy, right? Yeah. You just wash away all the impurities and the only thing that's left is your crystalline pure uh, substance. Well, then what he did is he removed the auxiliary group that made that crystalline. And now we know that this is pure Delta-9 THC for the first time. Yeah. And when he ran the NMR, he was able to show that the um, the vinyligous proton is the uh, the, the number 10 one because he can do coupling. Um, coupling is how is how a certain proton will interact with adjacent protons mm -hmm. and how that couples gives the chemist the idea of what the structure is. And so using NMR, he was able to correctly 
elucidate the structure. That's the contribution in 1964. It wasn't the first to identify. It wasn't the first to isolate, but it was the first to elucidate the structure. And that's extremely important. And it started with, uh, so a couple of things important to highlight here. One, so, you know, the research you're talking about with um, Roger Adams and everyone, you know, that sort of stopped around the 40s when we got into World War II and Prohibition and, and all of these things. And then in the 1950s, <clears throat> you had NMR that was developed, but then you also had gas chromatography that really, right. as we know it today, you know, like really came online. And it's worth noting that too, because gas chromatography gave researchers a way to very quickly separate and get some idea of the constituents of a compound uh, right. Much faster than, I mean, it, it's good to put this in perspective for people that the columns that chemists were using back in the early 1900s were like these huge custom made columns that like you can find pictures of them that are really awesome where you can see people like standing at one end, you know, pouring the mixture <laughs> in and someone at the bottom with collection flasks changing them out according to, you know, time and everything. Um so this technology, it really did evolve quite a lot very fast. Mm-hmm. And so the 1960s, I mean, uh, I think the first commercially available GC was like 1959 or something. It was it was pretty late. So really the, 19, right. the 1960s were the, <clears throat> the first opportunity for these tools to be applied to these questions. And I think that's, you know, the... Um, Rafi does a great job in his writing of pointing out that all he was doing was getting back to the problem that all of these other researchers were trying to answer, which is how does cannabis work? We know that it works because going back to William O'Shaughnessy, we know it has these effects. We know, you know, there's interesting potential and possibilities, but how does it work? Why? What's, what's driving all of that? And so, like you mentioned, you know, it's the application of these tools, NMR, as well as GC, because that just allowed people to do things very fast compared to what they were able to do before um, in investigating complex mixtures. And it wasn't just cannabis. Like, this blew natural products research wide open. That's right. Um, across the board. Um, but it's it's great to use cannabis as, as the example of um, really what was a trend. I mean, the 60s was a very exciting time for chemistry. Um to have these new tools and people that like Rafi that were in school in their post-grad programs or whatever, and starting to, you know, get access to these things. Um, I mean, it was, it's, it's amazing to read because you see just a huge explosion of publications um, around these things, identifying, um, um, elucidating these structures um, for all sorts of things. Um, So, so not just in the cannabis story, but also in the broader, natural products chemistry story, Rafi plays a a big role in that too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, most notably, you know, gas chromatography is, is used um, today uh, extensively to look at the essential oil aspect or the terpenes that are in cannabis extracts. And so the first report of terpenes, um, isolated from cannabis was again by Alexander Todd uh, back in the 30s. Um, You know, terpene chemistry, terpene chemistry is just a whole new thing. It's just like, actually, it's a whole old thing. Yes, a rediscovered thing. (laughs) There's a a book 
that was translated from German in 1902, I do believe. That, in fact, I'm trying to remember, Otto Wallach, I think, won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, I believe, uh, for his discover of allicyclic compounds, which is what mm. they called them back then, but the ter ter terpenes. Yeah. And if you look at his treatise, which I think was in in German, but then was translated in, into the into the English. Uh, that book, which was written in like 1902, is still relevant today. Terpene chemistry really hasn't changed too much. And um, like you said, Jason, with the advent of gas chromatography in the early 60s, the first uh, report um, in the literature, in the chemical literature, of the uh, analysis of the terpenoids and terpenes found in cannabis was done in 1961 by a Canadian group who published in Nature. And that's the first time you see a chromatogram of the terpene profile of yeah. cannabis essential oil. They wasted yeah, no so, time because so, that's one of the earliest well, we, times we, you we could even do it. Right away, yeah. <laughs> we can use this tool to figure out what's in cannabis. And so, and today, terpene profiles are measured by GC, uh, either direct injection or headspace measurement using gas chromatography. So, um, but you're you're absolutely right. What the what the advent was in, in chromatography in general was uh, so the way that gas chromatography separates compounds is based on their different boiling points. So okay. each each pure compound have unique boiling points. And, and, and the way a gas chromatography works is it's basically separating things so the most volatile ones come out and are detected first, and then the less volatile ones come out later. And so in this fractionation of the, the terpenes, yeah, you could do the same thing with, with cannabinoids, but recognize that now you're going to be looking at decarboxylated right. cannabinoids because the injection port temperature that heats up the sample that goes into the into the gas chromatography column is hot enough that you'll get decarboxylation. And again, maybe there's something to that because the cannabinoid acids weren't discovered until until some of Meshulam's later work. Mm -hmm. So remember that when you distill a cannabinoid acid, it irreversibly decarboxylates. So what you're going to get as your product in your distillate is going to be decarboxylated cannabis. But at some point, Meshulam said, hey, you know what? There's an acid group here and figured out that THCA in the trichome is not THCA, but it's THC. I'm sorry. THC is yeah. not THC. It's THCA. It's made as its acidic form. So, um, so yeah, so that was, that was also Mishulam's work. And, and so I think Raphael recognized at the get-go that there was some ambiguity about the position of the double bond. And that was something that was first observed by Robert Sidney Kahn, later by Adams and Todd. They all knew that this double bond walks around. We don't really know where it's at in the plant, but Mishulam, that was his first and most important, I think, contribution early on. And it really uh, set that, things off was, to the races from there. Well, he what, what he did was he started, he really wanted to investigate that Delta 8, Delta 9 thing like 
maybe, and, and in fact, it was Mishulam who followed up on the initial isomerization work mm -hmm. that, yeah. that um, Roger Adams published 20 years earlier in the 40s, where Mishulam now understood the roles of the acid, uh, that the acid plays in, in making uh, THC from the cyclization of, of CBD. Yeah. So in the case where you're using a protic acid, so a protic acid is an acid that actually has a proton. It has an H plus. And so you can think of like sulfuric acid is a protic acid. Acetic acid is a protic acid, right? Because the proton is actually the acid. Yeah. But what Mishulam found is that Lewis acids actually work. And now a Lewis acid is not a protic acid. It's not a chemical species with a proton. But what a Lewis acid is, is a Lewis acid is an electron pair acceptor. Mm -hmm. And so, 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 so this is a very important and very fundamental difference is that when you isomerize CBD with a Lewis acid and, um, Mishulam has used BF3 quite a bit, boron trifluoride, right? That's B boron in the middle with three fluorines. Well, those three fluorines are highly electronegative. In fact, fluorine is the most electronegative element on the periodic table. So what you're doing is you're, the, the fluorines withdraw electron density from the boron in the center. And boron only has three things around it, right? Which is yeah, weird right. because in chemistry, you strive for something called an octet, which is right. four things around it. So what that means is that boron has got an empty P orbital. Cool, right? <laughs> the empty P orbital is basically an electron acceptor because the, the fluorines are inductively pulling electron density away from the boron atom, which basically brings electron density into right. that empty P orbital. So when you take BF3 and you treat it with CBD, the first thing that happens, Jason, is that the oxygen, one of the phenolic oxygens, attacks the, the boron or the unshared mm -hmm. pair electron now coordinates to the boron and that makes a, uh, a trifluoro boro alkoxonium ion but anyway now the acid is the proton the phenolic proton so what happens is when you, you yeah. coordinate yeah. when you coordinate that phenolic uh oxygen to the boron that proton that was on the oxygen is now super acidic so in a way what the lewis acid is doing is it's creating an internal protic acid right right by, yes, yes. by reacting with the phenolic groups right did i explain that okay i mean i, I got it um i don't know okay. if for folks that that don't um that haven't studied chemistry in a while um some of that might be a little over their heads but i definitely understand i understand what you're saying that it's it's almost like a pro drug in a sort um, that it's, it's through the, the interactions that happen, you're freeing something else up that then can act as, as that, um, as well, that acid, if that's you, kind of a you, more you, simplified you need way a, to you need a it. proton to undergo the cyclization. Right. So you'd say, well, where's the proton with BF3 in the case with BF3, the proton is already on the CBD molecule, right? Yeah. It's one of the OH groups. And so when that OH group, when the oxygen from the OH group 
reacts with the boron. It just yeah. forms a complex, right? It doesn't yeah. doesn't actually form a bond. It's a non-bonding inner. Right. They just want to be close to each other. Yeah. I used to have a chemistry professor who said, ah, oh, the bonding interactions, those are, we know those. It's the non-bonding interactions <laughs> that makes chemistry exciting, right? Because yes, yeah. non-bonding interactions are kind of like off and on, off and on. Right, so right. Imagine yes. that the boron kind of sits on that oxygen and now makes that, that, that proton super acidic. So now it becomes the acid. Yeah. That protonates the double bond. And that gives a carbonium ion, which then closes with the with the oxygen to make the third ring of THC. Yeah. So, so Mishulam's contributions there were so important because what he found is that not only do you make THC that way, but you make this abnormal isomer called iso-THC. Yes. Right. Yeah, so the first yeah, one to yeah. describe that was Mishulam, and then later on, a researcher named Raz. Uh, or mm -hmm. uh, Raj Razdan, who was at the Arthur Little Company, who they were doing all kinds of interesting cannabinoid stuff. He studied that reaction to the hilt. So they were thinking, I think, along the lines of making THC versus extracting it from right. cannabis. Yeah. And and how can we make it through this this cyclization reaction? And so and so, what you find is that when you use a boron trifluoride acid, and this was published by Mishulam and followed up by Rastan, is that you get a statistical mixture of THC and mm -hmm. iso-THC, yeah. iso-THC being the abnormal isomer. Yeah. And here's something really cool, uh, Jason, this is totally new, like this is not in the literature and this is new science. So came in, so came in now, came in chemical cells an analytical standard for ISO delta eight THC, mm -hmm. and ISO delta eight THC is the is one of the major uh, non natural um, isomeric byproducts that's in yeah. delta eight that's being produced today. And what complicates this in delta eight production is that the ISO delta eight coalutes with with right. with delta eight. Yeah, it all looks the same. It all looks the same. It coalutes by HPLC. But the folks that came in chemical just last week published a method to separate these things by GC. So there's an opportunity for GC that HPLC is unable to, um, it's unable to separate these isomers from one another, but we could separate them by GC, which is fantastic. And hopefully that will lead to a development of a standardized method to use gas chromatography for the quantification of delta-8 and mm -hmm. uh, the delta-8 isomers that are formed in the acid-catalyzed reaction uh, with, with CBD. That was actually, that was pioneered by uh, Dr. Richard Sams at KCA Labs. And I think mm -hmm. he coached Cayman on, on that method. But I expect that there will soon be a standardized method for all Delta-8 analysis yeah. where it's being yeah. run by GC, which is totally cool. But here's another little piece. So when when Cayman announced that they were selling this analytical standard of Delta-8, uh, I, I got a good relationship with the guys that came in and I was able to basically shake a, a free sample of a whole five milligrams. Oh wow! Nice. Yeah. Away. 
but you know, what am I going to do with ISO Delta eight? So mm -hmm. what I did is I just had them send that sample to Alan Hallett and I explained, oh, really? yeah, I explained to professor Hallett. So for your listeners who don't know, yeah, um, big, Alan, another big part of the story coming up. Yes. Alan, Alan Hallett is the molecular pharmacologist who, or I think that's what she is or neurobiologist or whatever. Certainly, Super. neuropharmacology is a lot of work she's done. That's what it is. Yeah, we discovered the CB1 receptor, and 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 looks at different compounds and how they act on uh, upregulation of phosphorylation and other um, signals that are involved in 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 cannabinoid binding. And so um, we have a paper that um, a postdoc is giving at the ICRS. Uh, later in June in Toronto on the results of our study. And what I could tell you is that it's active. Nice. I yeah. mean, this is brand new science. Yeah. Um, this is really cool. What we're showing is that the ISO THC isomers do show some of the hallmark signs that cannabinoids do in uh, enhancing cellular signaling. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. When I can talk more about that, I will. But that's really exciting to find. But um, going back to Meshulam again, I think Raphael, certainly being a, a, the chemist that he is, looked at all the cannabinoids and looked at, yeah. I think, everything from CBC to CBN to um, uh, derivatives of CBD. I know in his later work, he was talking about the methyl ester of yes, CBDA yeah. being a more stable compound than CBDA. CBDA is highly prone to decarboxylation, yes. but the methyl ester is not. So he's able to show that the methyl ester can be delivered into the body yeah. and then and the body in pops the body, yeah. it, uh, right, it undergoes hydrolysis like the pro drug you mentioned, yeah. and it is able to act uh, as, as CBDA. So I think that that um, was, was really important on his chemistry thing, but his his most important work to date, I do believe, came out of his fascination on how do these things work. And we yeah. talked about Professor Howlett. So being um, early on in the game, I think they assumed that there was maybe a nonspecific target. They didn't think that there was a single Receptor. Right. They thought it might be enzymes even potentially could, that were targeted. It's acting prophylactically or mm -hmm. peripherally. It's just not, it's, it's There's, not. There was talk about um, maybe it, it um, affects the um, fluidity of cellular membranes. Like maybe. Yeah, or something like that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. There was, there was all kinds of theories put forward, but when they actually for the first time identified the CB1 receptor, it really opened up uh, the whole field of endocannabinoids. Exactly. Why are those receptors there? Yeah. Why are those receptors there? Right. Where those receptors aren't there for an exogenous compound that comes from a plant. Well, let's, let's, let's actually highlight that because Raphael Mishulam actually says that multiple, multiple times. And I think it's worth reiterating because this is a legitimate question that a lot of people ask me. Um, do we have cannabinoid receptors because of cannabis? 
Um, and so I want to take that question seriously, just because a lot of folks, um, especially not even just folks that are newer to cannabis, but, um, I get, you know, like fairly established people in the industry that ask me that too. Um, and, and yeah, the assumption is not immediately that we have receptors because of cannabis. The assumption is that there are some endogenous compounds within us that we don't understand that the bodies use that for. And Rafi, even, I think I even have one of the papers up here um i'm trying to remember exactly what he says but he um he says something um like very casually like describing the uh history of discovering cannabinoid receptors in endocannabinoids and he says you know of course these are not here for exogenous compounds there's more to the story and we just have to dig a little deeper because clearly we don't understand our own human physiology as well as we thought we did um well <laughs> that 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 goes without saying <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think uh, in, in Rafi's movie, he talks about it at the very end that that the endocannabinoid system is probably one of many yeah. molecular-based yeah. receptor systems that are in our bodies. Um, you know, I think the, the dopamine uh, or dopaminergic uh, system that's in the brain was, was well understood. Well, not well understood, but it was, it was explored and looked at. And I, I think there's an interesting interaction too between the um, dopaminergic and the uh, oh, endocannabinoid system because uh, dopamine is that is that is that reward. That's mm -hmm. when you feel good and when things are going. And certainly, cannabis can get in that in that realm too as well. And then you got the five HTAs. I mean, that's just yeah. like. There's this this whole library of receptors yeah, in your all brain. The serotonin subtypes, and it truly is a a combinatorial problem because you can't affect one and not yes. affect the other because it's complex systems. Yeah, they're all connected. Right. Yeah. Right. They're so woven together that it's really difficult to just discern what any one single thing is doing. Well, and it's, it's worth it's worth highlighting that too because I, th I think some people tend to think that, um, you know, when they're trying to engage with cannabinoids or cannabis, that it's it's more or less a kind of simple thing that um, they're, you know, essentially feed the the term often used is they're feeding their endocannabinoid system, which can be true to an extent, um, but it's also important to note that influencing the endocannabinoid system inevitably influences all of these other systems too that's right and so you have to have some respect for just how interconnected that all is and you're not just interacting with cannabinoid receptors no. and trpv1s and stuff in isolation there's all of this other stuff going on and so it's that's important right. for folks not to um you know it's so easy for our brains to oversimplify pharmacology and a lot of you know, these concepts, especially when marketing makes it very hard to discern what's real and what's not, because companies that produce these products will make it sound very simple and straightforward. Um, so I, as just another point, I want to highlight that. Um, well, there's a, there's, there's a transient nature there yeah. and things are constantly changing. And, and, and uh, a theory that I have, which is borne out in some research, but still needs to be further researched is that um, one of the variables of the entourage effect is um, that, you know, 
cannabis in its natural form mm -hmm. is much more effective than the isolated cannabinoids themselves. And so I think that it's highly probable that the wild card in the entourage effect is the rate and magnitude of upregulation of re receptor expression on the cell surface. Yeah. And yeah. so it's known that there are, there, there are signals that come into the cell that work on the nucleus that can upregulate enzymatic production or can right. upregulate the synthesis of, of receptors. And I think, I mean, it's very difficult to kind of flush this out because there's so many different things going on. And like you said, the interconnectivity of these systems. But what's known in general is that terpenes and terpenoids that are found in cannabis extracts modulate the activity of the cannabinoids. So you could consume a cannabis extract that maybe has a lower amount of THC, but has a lot of terpenes, and you'll feel a much larger effect. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> then okay. if you were just, um, if you were just consuming the cannabinoid itself, I, I, I think one of the things that bears that out is the fact that when you look at plant medicine, where there's multiple components, right? There could be the terpenes, there could be the active ingredients, in this mm -hmm. case, the cannabinoids, there could be lipids, there could be sugars, right, right. Yeah. there could be uh, what they call the full spectrum extract, right? Which is yeah. as much as you could bring from the plant. And I think, you know, anecdotal evidence says that, well, those types of preparations are, are more active than purified cannabinoids. Well, what's the molecular basis of that, right? What's the biochemical basis? And, and so, one of, so the theory that I have is that terpenes are known to increase fluidity at the lipid bilayer, right? Yes, the lipid bilayer yes. are the cell walls mm -hmm. that protect the inside of the cell, the cytosol portion of the cell from the outside. And so what happens is terpenes kind of, I don't know if the right word is intercalate, but they can get in to the lipid bilayers and start opening up channels, which starts exchanging compounds on the outside, come in, start, you know, compounds on the inside, go out. I, I liken it to opening the windows at your house. Yeah, when you yeah. open the windows at your house, you're going to start exchanging the outside air with the inside air. So what I think, Jason, and again, you would look at some of the Mishulam's data and you could look at some of the clinical data with mm -hmm. cannabinoids where they're looking at whole plant extract versus single isolate. And what I believe is that the entourage effect is potentially somehow enhancing mm -hmm. the uh, 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 formation of the receptors themselves, right? Yes. Because you can imagine that if you have a certain amount of mm -hmm. THC, well, if you have a lot more receptors, you're going to get a lot more activity yeah. because yeah. there's lots of baseball gloves to catch that ball, right? Yep. But certainly, like, if you look at, like, where you're getting, I don't know, like, I, I know a lot of people like 
cannabinoid isolates like CBD is very popular sure. in certain yeah. beverages. Uh, and certainly like if you extract CBD isolate, which is a white crystalline compound, it doesn't have all of the earthiness mm -hmm. that comes with the, the whole plant extracts. And certainly like if you're drinking like a soda or having a beverage right, or something, right, yes. you may yeah. not want to taste all that That's earthiness, yeah. but you still want the effect of the cannabinoid. So I think in today's marketplace, there are single active ingredient products that I guess people seem to enjoy, but plant-based medicine should really have the whole plant in there. And I'm not saying that you have to have full spectrum whenever you take cannabinoids, but I think if you're trying to get the medicinal benefit out of it, there's still things that we don't quite understand right. Yes, yeah. how these things work, but it's like, well, there, there was a, a really fascinating paper. It was about, about five years now that looked at the plasma blood levels of CBD mm -hmm. and they looked at a at an extract that had all the minor cannabinoids, terpenes, right, right. maybe fats and waxes, and they looked at CBD isolate. There was no comparison. Yeah. There's yeah. almost a, a 4X difference in plasma blood levels taken from, mm -hmm. from a whole plant extracts versus isolate. So I think Mishulam's uh, uh, notion that he kind of coined with uh, Ethan Russo around the entourage effect goes way beyond cannabis, right? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Her herbal medicine in general. I mean, we've gotten uh, analgesics out of, uh, out of natural products. I mean, the most typ typical would be uh, aspirin, yeah, right? Which right. is acetyl salicylic acid. Well, salicylates are in willow bark so maybe willow bark extracts might have better analgesic properties than just the aspirin itself but i don't see anybody chewing on willow bark right and it all like depends that. on yeah the the pharmacology of some of those accompanying compounds like cannabis is nice because um the herbal synergy works in a sort of mm -hmm. more or less positive way although there are some examples of medicinal plants where, you know, to effectively engage them, you, you do want to prepare them in some certain way in order to alter the chemistry a bit to get, you know, potential toxic elements out or, or whatever. But I, I definitely agree that a lot of that, you know, there's a lot that we don't understand around how this herbal synergy works. And something I've wondered, um, so a couple of things. One, the cannabinoid acids influence absorption and bioavailability of the decarboxylated cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think plays into these synergistic effects. Um, and then the what you were saying about terpenes um, playing a role in, in affecting how things can move across membranes. I've wondered about, you know, there are these transport proteins that depending mm -hmm. on certain conditions, they will carry things... Um, into the cell and they, they will carry even, um, mm -hmm. um, cannabinoids, you know, and things like that across, um, these cellular membranes. And I've wondered how different types of terpenes, particularly looking at, um, like your, your, you know, alcohol terpenoids, you know, with those hydroxyl groups mm -hmm. versus pure terpenes, how, um, they drive those effects. Cause I would imagine if, 
if that's what's happening, then you should see some um, correlations there between those sort of classes um, because mm -hmm. they're going to have different, um, because of the hydroxyl group, they're going to have, you know, different um, um, behaviors in terms of their ability to. Um, yes, the hydroxyl group. The hydroxyl group can conjugate to a sugar. Mm -hmm. um, you you can functionalize the hydroxyl group where a terp. Ter, ter, this is often a, a, a sticking point that I often have with people. You know, the wider class of compounds are terpenoids, right? Like right. cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. Terpenes are a class within terpenoids that, you know, strictly speaking, are oligomers of um, isoprene. Of isoprene. And they're just hydrocarbons. So as soon as you introduce an oxygen or a sulfur or some other heterofunctionality, you no longer have a terpene, but you have a terpenoid. Right. Um, and in, in, in the case of cannabis, it's so interesting because when you look at freshly harvested cannabis, the most predominant terpene in, in many, many strains is myrcene. Right. And myrcene is kind of like, I don't know. I won't call it the CBGA, but it's kind of like the stem mm -hmm. cell terpene. It is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you, 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 you I know, know what, what you're talking saying. about because I've, yeah, I've looked at the biosynthetic route so much. I know where you're going. Yeah. yeah. So basically, so if, if you look at the biosynthetic route, you're looking at, um, GPP, right? Yeah. And, and so if GPP just loses phosphoric acid mm -hmm. and makes a double bond, so what happens is the N carbon's got the phosphate group and then the beta carbon's got a proton. So what happens is it loses phosphoric acid, generates a double bond, that's myrcene. Yeah. That can also, so if you lose the phosphate group, you generate what's called a carbonium ion. Well, because there's um, other double bonds, those double bonds can rearrange in that carbonium ion to give you the pinene skeleton, to give you the thujacine skeleton, to give you the limonene. So all of these comp all of these terpenoids basically come from common common precursors, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Um, there's very, very notable work uh, by Professor Paul Malberg at the University of Indiana, who did the lion's share of what we know about uh, cannabinoid biosynthesis in the trichome. And when you talk about accumulation of cannabinoids and terpenes in the trichome, you should look at the work of Paul Malberg. He just did some fantastic stuff where they looked at, you know, where the cannabinoids are being formed. They looked at different, you know, are there cannabinoids in the stalks? Are they just in the sessile trichomes? Um, they did some incredible microscopy and staining work to basically identify where these where these cannabinoids come. But going back to Mishulam for a second, how this impacts him. So I, I think Rafi was a classically trained organic chemist. And at the time, you know, again, still to this day, you know, the FDA approval process for approving drugs is based on a single active ingredient in basically right. a matrix of inactive ingredients. I mean, that's just, that's the monomolecular medicine that FDA. So when you talk about cannabis and you say, well, there's more than one active ingredient, and then there's this synergy 
between the other non-cannabinoid components, it basically turns that whole monomolecular medicine thing on its head because as scientists, we want to study a single active ingredient and how that interacts with the body. And when you look at these FDA approved drugs that, you know, if you ever watch the evening news at night, you'll find <laughs> out that by the pharmaceutical companies <laughs> and their commercials of the litany of side effects while they show some family frolicking right, smiling and yeah, bright sunny day. Yeah. <laughs> right. I never knew what the skin of the perineum was until I heard it on a, uh, heard it on a, uh, a Farsiga commercial, I think, or yeah. the crazy names they come up with these drugs, but a very important contribution that Raphael made was they recognized that CBD can be used to control epilepsy. And so they did a, a, a trial in Sao Paulo, Brazil in the late 70s and early 80s and found a high therapeutic efficacy for CBD in treating difficult to treat um, seizure conditions yeah. like Dravet yeah. syndrome and Lennox-Gastel. And there's a couple other kind of like types of epilepsies that just don't um, treat well with the current anti-epileptic medication. And what they found with CBD is that it worked across the board and it worked really great with little to no side effects. But then, you know, the thing just kind of was out there in the literature that was that's a study where they got like almost a hundred percent, um, response rate or something. There was one study they did. I don't remember. Yeah, that I, I think not. the study you're. I think the study you're referring to, which he mentions in the scientist, is is treating pediatric nausea associated with that's, cancer that's treatment. That's right. Yeah, you're right. And in, in that case, uh, in dosing with a very small amount, I mean, we're talking micrograms amount of of THC under the tongue of infants, it completely blocked all chemotherapy associated. Nausea, and you know if you've ever had chemotherapy or know anyone who's ever been through chemotherapy, it it just it it, it makes you nauseous. It just yeah. makes you sick. It just makes you not well. So, you know, this was where GW Pharmaceuticals came along. You know, like twenty years later, and said, "Hey, yeah, looks yeah. like CVD works on epilepsy. Let's try this, right?" And it's interesting to note, Jason, that rather than doing a whole plant extract, even though they grow plants to make their CBD, mm -hmm. they're still purifying it into the isolate form yeah. or pretty, pretty for, pure. For epidiolic. Yeah, then just yeah. putting some, some flavor in there and that's the product. So you would think that in this day and age that we would have a way – especially after all the work that's been done in cannabis to adopt botanical medicines yeah, yeah. In, in, in a different mechanism of an FDA approved drug. And certainly like what's happened recently where they've turned down Charlotte Webb's, you know, petition to list it as a dietary supplement. Yeah. It's, it makes me believe that the, people in our government were really snookered on the farm bill. Mm -hmm. I think they were just thinking seeds and rope and paper. I don't even think they even contemplated CBD, let alone contemplated psychoactives from hemp. 
that can be made from CBD. All that literature was known. I'm sure there was no <laughs> contemplation that, oh, we're going to let people grow hemp and everything is going to be fine. And it's like, you know, with the price of THC the way it is today, Jason, and the yeah. price of uh, and the availability of CBD, it is cheaper to convert CBD into THC yeah. than it yeah. is to extract THC from cannabis plants. And, and we're in a commodity market where price wins yep. every time. Yep. So if you have a more economical way to make your product, you know, that's the way that's going to. And apparently do you don't have any barriers like, because the whole thing with the, the hemp system is that these products are being made. I mean, straight up Delta nine THC is being made and mm -hmm. sold under the auspices of the farm bill. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine why people wouldn't do that. It's like, Oh, you mean I don't have to jump through the regulatory hoops of these legal cannabis markets and have to have, you know, meet all these extra security requirements and traceability, you know, right. all of that sort of stuff. And, Oh, I can get my products into gas stations and grocery stores and, you know, wherever else it, um, internet internet without asking age right or yeah i mean it's age. it's something that um it makes a lot of sense for people that all they care about is making as much money as possible on thc it makes perfect sense why um they would do that and something that had and i know we're getting off track a little bit but it's just fascinating to me and, and you know just from a like chemistry standpoint and sort of the the cultural side of of everything um, I was I was in Florida recently trying to help legislators understand the consequences of some of the language of some bills that they're putting together to try to regulate Delta 8 THC products. Yeah, they're now. trying to regulate it down there, right? And um, they were teaching me about just how big some of these Delta 8 companies are, um, these hemp-derived THC companies are, just how huge they are. And a lot of them moved to Florida um, over the last couple of years um, because they view that as a place they could operate safely in terms of being able to um, do business as they want with minimal regulation, you know, interference and everything. Um, and it, I mean, I knew it's one of those things of like, you know, but then once you see it and you really hear the stories and understand, I mean, this is huge, huge, like, these um the the thc market in the hemp side has become dominated by some companies some groups that um, have deep 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 pockets um and they are really fighting to um you know keep keep this going and it's just way bigger than i than i imagined it was and i already imagined it being pretty big um but there's just a ton of money um involved in ensuring this all continues as, yeah, as it has is it any wonder that that those markets are flourishing in states that um um don't have delta nine right exactly yeah yeah <laughs> so like here in mississippi you see these cbd stores everywhere and why do people go to the cbd stores it's not to buy cbd <laughs> it's it's to buy delta eight products and you know that's what um have a lot of folks ever since I've moved back to Mississippi, I've 
had a lot of people um, show me C of A's and, and product labels and stuff of these Delta 8 products they're buying. And all of it is suspect. Like most of the COAs look fraudulent to me. Um, or they are associated with batches from years ago that have nothing to do with anything that's being produced. Um, and I just keep reminding them, I'm like, the only reason this exists is because cannabis is, well, medical's right. legal now here, but you know, it's still prohibited. And I was like, if cannabis wasn't prohibited, none of this, there'd be no need for that's any right. of this. Um, that's right. And we wouldn't know what Delta eight is. We'd think it's a version of COVID or something or, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, there, there, there's yeah. no, yeah. there's no mistake about it that people want THC. They want to get high. They want to feel the euphoria. And when, when you could make THC from CBD and then dilute it yep. in a gummy back down to that 0.3% Which in a gummy is actually quite a bit milligram per gram wise. Yeah. I mean, you <laughs> could pack, you know, upwards to 10 or 15 milligrams, depending on how big your gummy is. Exactly. Yeah. And still be below that threshold. But the, the real disappointing thing to me is that is that um yeah there there is big money and and one of the reasons why there's big money there jason is it's a much larger addressable market right yeah right and so you're stifled in a in a single state when you have a license in that state to only sell in that mm -hmm. state where these guys can sell everywhere yeah. across the United States and on the internet. And you'd think too that, well, you know, like I, I know that um, I think Mississippi didn't do this, but I think uh, Georgia and Alabama are doing this. They want to regulate a cannabis, but they want to regulate some low THC bullshit version mm -hmm. of, and, and, you know, like with, um, uh, Alabama, I think you can't be above 10%. I think in Georgia, you can't be above 5%. Yeah, Mississippi like, chose 30, so they did all right. <laughs> well, here in Vermont, in the in the and we have adult use here in Vermont, they've capped the THC potency at 60%. I don't oh, know extracts. where they get the 60%. Yeah, Mississippi did that too. They chose 60% for the extracts. Yeah, 30% for flour. But it's ridiculous flour. because you're lucky if you can get a rosin to test at 60. That means you have to basically do fresh frozen to get a huge terpene fraction to dumb down your oh, THC. Exactly, yeah. Or they're blending in so, CBD to push it down. Yeah, that that sucks too, it right? Does suck. To kind it of sucks. It's, I hate that it happens, but yeah. It's, right. So I went to the dispensary the other day and I noticed that there were two rosins. I bought them both, right? Full melt rosins. Um, they were right at that 60% mark, right? Mm. And so does it taste as good as like a good THCA BHO? Not even close. Yeah. In fact, like you say, I think they actually have to add stuff to dumb things down, which it's just the opposite of what you want to do, you know? Yeah, I know. But it's, it's, it's what I've been trying to encourage people here is like to think about that broad chemistry. And it's like, rather than trying to add stuff back in, see if there's a way that you can try to, um, 
have your extraction be as broad as as possible without getting into like chlorophyll and all of that but like you were saying like get the widest terpene fraction you can get the widest series of minor cannabinoids and everything that you can um to reduce that that need um but it's yeah i think closed loop hydrocarbon in in my estimation gives the cleanest extract um i've seen some rosin I've seen some rosin profiles that look pretty good, but in general, the problem with rosin is that the the scalability and the and the loss is is a production nightmare. It just becomes very difficult to scale. But with closed loop hydrocarbon, that scales beautifully, and I could show you COAs where we could account for almost a hundred percent of the extract by just adding up the terpenes yeah. and then adding up the cannabinoids, we get damn near close to 97, 98% of the stuff accounted for. That means there's only like one or 2% of stuff that we don't know what it is. That's pretty good for a plant extract. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And they taste great and they're extremely effective. So, uh, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, man. That's the I way know, to yeah, go. Yeah, I'm, I've never been a fan of, of potency limits. It is interesting on the flower side. Um, what's been interesting to see here is there's no rush to try to get THC numbers above 30 because you can't because it's not allowed. Um, so there's not the same um, sort of pressure on labs to um, boost numbers, at least to absurd degrees there's pressure on them to boost them as close to 30 as possible but um yeah that's that's all there, there, there's no cannabis flower no. on planet earth that has 30 percent thc if you understand the structure of the plant and where <laughs> uh, cannabinoids are coming from yeah no, uh, in fact i even think uh 20 or 25 percent is a stretch too i think that's the but upper the, limit yeah. in my from my experience you know mm-hmm. yeah the thing that's going on with testing, which is a real boondoggle, is the fact that um, because we're in a prohibition market, um, potency is a way of grading the value of cannabis, right? And so, like, if your potency is higher, you're going to get a higher, you know, yeah number of dollars for that pound versus something that's got a lower potency. The, the issue really is Jason here. My, my point of view is that, is that reporting potencies on a dry weight basis is the issue. And that is because cannabis is not dry, right? <laughs> cannabis is moist, right? Even if the stems crack, there's still moisture in there. And so the difference in, in moisture, content if you think about it if you're reporting on a dry weight basis that means you need to know in your denominator Mm -hmm. what does that bud weigh without zero water bone dry no water well check it out these labs can't dry that herb over a period of two weeks in a desiccator they dry it overnight Mm -hmm. in an oven by heating it up yeah. Well, guess what happens to weed when you heat it up? The terpenes start yeah. volatilizing, right? Yep. You start decarboxylating cannabinoids. So what you're testing on that bone dried right. sample, not, yeah. 
you've lost a lot of your mass. Guess what happens to the THC number? Yeah, it's going to go it up. Goes up. I actually I actually did a study on this that I cannot release publicly because it was for a private company and that's just how it goes, but I actually did a, a research study on this that I wish I could um, release the the data from, but I'll I'll explain it. I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with me explaining it. Um, you know, I I did a really long, gentle loss on drying study to look at this, and um, what for people that don't know, loss on drying is just what it sounds like. You take uh, some material, you put it in an oven at a set temperature, and every so often you measure the weight of that material, you see the weight going down and down and down, and the idea is that you're, if you're dealing with something that doesn't have a lot of essential oils or something, the idea is that you want to see that moisture content, you know, uh, you want to see that weight plateau. Um, mm -hmm. So that's not changing that's anymore, and then theoretically you know, at that point it's dry. However, with cannabis, if you do this, um, your chart will look like a staircase. Um, you'll see it go and it'll plateau for a while. And then you'll see it go further and plateau for a while. And then you can see it go further and plateau for a while. And what you're seeing is water loss, terpene loss, CO2 loss, um, all of these things that you just described coming out. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad you brought that up because it's something that one, most labs don't want to talk about and don't want to tell you but you know i'm thinking about it, i was like i don't even think the company i work for i don't even think they operate labs anymore so maybe none of my worries about sharing this matters anymore but um you know this is a real issue that i think labs should be more honest about i do think it is an issue that um this is one way that labs boost their numbers is by um manipulating their loss on drying method um to specifically exploit this issue um so it's 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 good for people to to be aware of these i have a whole lecture where i, I spend an yeah, hour and I'm, a half like talking about all these different things that labs you know I'm, should I'm be thinking, honest with people about i'm thinking that they should do for, forget about reporting it on dry weight basis who needs it on dry weight you're not smoking on dried weight so if you're smoking as is it should be tested as is whatever that moisture content is so the the, 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 the the issue with moisture is that is that moisture accounts for some of the weight of that bud. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so if you dry out only the water and you're not drying out the terpenes, well, we know that that can't happen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's quite a feat. So so yeah. if that can't happen, the dried form mm -hmm. so so maybe I, I don't know, can you quantify it's hard like on the as-is material it, and then create it, a, a correction factor you can. for the loss of terpenes? Yeah, you, you can, but it's tricky. It's like no matter how you do it, there's a trade-off because when you look at wet... Well, because how do, you know you're, how do you know how much of your terpenes you're losing? Right, yeah. Like if you're losing your, your myrcene and your osamine, the most volatile ones, but you ain't losing caryophylline. Right, right. <laughs> you ain't losing some of your more heaviers. So... So yep. at some point, so, so I think, I think just again, the way I think is that when I buy something at the store, I want to know what the cannabinoid content of that is not that nug. That's very, a that's a hard, oven. that's a hard problem to overcome. I was actually in, in the last class I was teaching, I was talking about this, that 
you know, we don't have test results on what you actually consume. We have test results on the material that was sampled either at the just after production, if it's a formulated product, you know, or mm -hmm. for flour, it's coming, it's a test that's done as early as possible, right after cure, um, because they want to get that to a dispensary as quickly as possible. That's right. And those, these products change over time. Right. And so this idea of like, how do I get data of what I'm actually consuming, not what it was months ago or, or whatever, this is a, one, a very important thing people should be thinking about and it is a very hard problem to solve um just be it, like yeah. just logistically um it's 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 tricky which is why a lot of companies are trying to develop these like home like test kits and stuff different devices you know there's the my dx and there's the different ir in our machines and all these other things to try to help people test at home quickly and everything but um you know, you raise a good point. It's a, I, I also want that data. Um, and it's a, it's a tricky issue to, to solve. And I think it's something people take for granted. Like they, we, uh, in some ways we've sort of taught them to focus on data without teaching them that you also have to understand the context of the data and that that yeah. context isn't always applicable to your context, uh, you know, and how you're using it. Yeah, I mean, I think potency is an artifact of prohibition. You yeah, know, I mean, I, I feel like we shouldn't even... You don't yeah. test your beers, you know. I mean, yeah, um, uh, Cureleaf, Budweiser, my local grower here, some heady microbrew. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I don't like Budweiser. I've never liked Budweiser. I've never liked American lager. But I love a good heady IPA. I love a good stout. I love microbrewed beer. So to me, cannabis is along those same lines, yeah, which is yeah. that I don't, even though some breweries will actually give you the specific gravity of right, the different right. beers and yeah. try to give you some, some, you, you want that IPA because you like the way the IPA tastes. Yeah. You could care less about how much alcohol is in the IPA. If it tastes really good, yeah. you're going to enjoy it. To me, cannabis falls in that same thing. It's more around not potency. We know it's going to be potent. These things make a lot of THC. The real question is how does it taste and what is your experience? Yeah. And that's a very subjective thing yes. because what you yeah. might like is not what I like. I like – my wife is a uh, – likes blueberries, likes citrusy, lemony things. I like the gas. Mm -hmm. I like yeah. the diesels and chem dogs. So, I mean – our flavor palette and, 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 and the um, olfactory spectroscopy that our nose can do is so sophisticated that we know what we like. I just recently tried a, a strain that I hadn't tried before called Animal Mints. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, Animal Mints? Wow. This is like, it's kind of like, it's a little bit like Girl Scout, but it doesn't right. have that minty thing. To me, it's more gassy and I love mm -hmm. it. And I predicted, you know what? I bet you my wife doesn't like the animal mints. So I was like, hey, what'd you think of the animal? Nah, that's not like, it's like, ah, yeah. Yep. So you can kind of predict like what different people are going to like almost just based on their palate. Yes. And to me, it's like once cannabis is, is not prohibited and once there aren't, you know, make or break deals based on a THC number, it's going to be all about quality yeah. which is a very subjective thing you know yes. yeah i want my buds to look fresh i want them to smell fresh 
and I could really care about the THC number. I mean, I, as a scientist, I'm interested in cannabinoid profile, mm -hmm. yeah. but I don't think it should be as important in the commerce of cannabis. Yeah. But that to me is an artifact of prohibition. Yeah, really, really that THC number should only matter in the context of formulation. Um, mm -hmm. you know, where you're trying to actually get a dosing, you know, that's, that's right. consistent or whatever. And for people with specific, um, you know, therapeutic context where that dosing matters and they need to know what the dose is. Um, right. But, like, like in a gummy, you want to know that that's a five milligram gummy right. and not a 20 milligram gummy. Yeah. I mean, their testing matters, but guess what? In the gummy, <laughs> you don't have to with the water yeah. issue and the bud as Yeah, don't even get me I started think... on testing data around edibles and and that sort of thing because i've i've got well what i can what i can tell you with what i can tell you with you know emulsions is that when you have emulsified cannabinoids yeah in order to measure the amount <laughs> of cannabinoid you have to quantitatively de-emulsify that yes. meaning that you have to so those emulsions basically are dispersed particles right. of fat that are basically the reason why you can't see through this vial is like it's with milk well, I'm sorry. It's like a colloid. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a colloidal suspension. That's mm -hmm. exactly what it is. And so it's kind of like milk. You can't see through milk either, right? Because milk has glycoproteins that basically um, uh, solubilize milk fat within the continuous phase of water. The interesting thing about, about milk is you could continuously cut it with water and it never oils out, right? Yeah never oils out it tells you that the balance between the emulsified fat mm -hmm. and 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 the fat particles themselves is is is, is perfect that's right because cool. you yeah, can't you really can't cool. denature milk by adding water to it but you, you know the funny thing I, I wouldn't say the funny thing but like the popularity of gummies i think has to do with america's sweet tooth you know we love sweet things we love sour things mm -hmm. I think when someone's like sitting behind their desk and they can't take a hit of a vape pen, they can just like take a gummy. The always the thing I always tell people about gummies too is you're you're tempted to chew it and eat it like you would any normal. Right. Food. But um, the secret to gummies is to keep it in your mouth yeah. and suck on it like a cough drop, mm -hmm. so it gets absorbed into your oral mucosa. And doesn't go down into your gut because if it goes down into the gut, you may not feel anything. You, so you'll take yeah. another one. You may not feel anything. You take take you know five or six gummies, and all of a sudden you're you're lit. And then that's because it's gone through digestion and then oxidation in the liver, and now you've made eleven hydroxy yeah. and norcarboxy. Well, guess what? Those things don't go through the blood brain barrier, and they're going to be circulating all throughout your body. And that's the guy who got the body high from eating too many edibles and had to take the next day off work because the cannabinoids are acting on the peripheral uh, CB2 mm -hmm. endocannabinoid system. It's not getting into CB1. It's really just acting all throughout your body. But um, yeah, I, I find it really interesting if you look at new markets where, where, where edibles are allowed, edibles immediately shoots up because people like mm -hmm. gummies. And I think they like 
you know, beverages and soda pops and things like that. And now you can put your cannabis in there and you can drink your cannabinoids, but there's yeah. no substitution for just consuming flour and concentrates, you know, yeah. the, the way that we do. I, yeah, uh, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I understand a lot of these products get developed for both convenience and novelty sake. You know, it's sort of like we don't necessarily like need cannabinoids and everything, but we're going to put it in everything because people find it interesting and they'll they'll try it. Um, but I agree that sometimes the infused products um, overcomplicate things a bit, um, one by introducing variables like sugar and other things. Um, mm -hmm. But I wanted to, so I've got about um, 15 minutes left. I wanted to loop back around um to start to cap this off, you know, we, we talked kind of about the history of the research all the way into the 90s. Let's talk about more modern um, research. And w I think one one thing that people hear some of us scientists say a lot is that Raphael Meshulam deserves, deserved the Nobel Prize. And when, yeah. he, when he passed away, a lot of us on social media voiced our um, frustration that he had not received the Nobel Prize. And so let's talk a little bit about that uh, for folks that are kind of um, on the outside there and don't understand why um, folks are making those claims. Why would you say um, Rafi deserved the Nobel Prize? Well, uh, no, Nobel Prize is a very uh, politically um, yeah. charged uh, award. Uh, there's a lot of politics involved that deal with not only United States, but international uh, politics because it comes out of Sweden, mm -hmm. um, and the the committee is over there in Sweden, and it consists of international scientists. and And uh, on our hash church episode that we had dedicated to Rafi, actually we we renamed it. We call it Hash Temple. Nice, now, nice. <laughs> since Raphael was a, a practicing Jew, yeah. we figure, well, let's. Let's call Hash Church Hash Temple since yeah. this was dedicated cool. to him. So, so um, I, on that episode, Ethan Russo talked a little bit about um, the previous efforts to nominate Rafi for the Nobel Prize. So, um, so Nobel Prize really has to do with not just a really important discovery, but it has to do with the impact that that discovery has in the field. Yeah. And if you look at it, I mean, the discovery, well, let's back up for a second. His structural elucidation of THC was extremely important scientifically and extremely important in the chemical literature, but that wasn't really worthy of a Nobel prize because, you know, other people had isolated it first mm -hmm. and other people had talked about its structure, but then Rafi kind of came in and, and cleaned up all the previous work. Right. But what certainly was notable was his work that they did after the discovery of THC and after they found out that it was the principal active component so-called toxic component or the thing that led to intoxication from cannabis was how does it work? And, and you know, is there something here that is more generally applied to uh, medicinal uh, drug discovery than just 
you know, smoking cannabis and feeling the effects of, of agonizing one's TV or one's CB1 receptor. So here's, here's the joke for your next party, Jason. When you, when you want to ask somebody, hey, do you want to get high? Rather than saying that, it's like, let's go agonize right. some CB1 receptors. Yeah. <laughs> or I like when they, when they found out, uh, and it, this was recent work within the last 10 years, that actually cannabinoids are involved in neurogenesis. Mm -hmm. So when you told your roommate in college, hey, let's go kill some brain cells, <laughs> you're actually doing just the opposite. You know, we'll you were growing brain some cells. New ones. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I think the real the real interesting aspect about about the you know where where this brings us today and you, you asked about like the ongoing research that's being done. So we're finding more and more out about how these things work in the body. And 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 that to me, if you look at that body of literature, doesn't happen until Raphael's seminal work in 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 uh, collaboration with Professor Howlett yeah. and William Devane and um, uh, 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 Pertwee and Ro Ro Roger Pertwee in Scotland, uh, the discovery of the endocannabinoid system is worthy of a Nobel Prize. There's no question about it because of the impact that it's had in the industry. When they discovered the receptors and then later on the ligands for those receptors, there is not one pharmaceutical company on planet Earth that did not pay attention to that and immediately started developing drugs to act on those receptors, right? That's how we came up with the spice compound, the JW compounds, the wind compound, mm -hmm. um, all of the cannabinoids that are in clinical trials right now that are not phytocannabinoids all came out of Raphael's discovery of the endocannabinoid system, which was really the missing piece. We knew that humans love this plant. We know that it got them happy or high or euphoric, but they didn't know why. And it was that seminal discovery of the, the CB1, CB2 receptors of anandamide and 3AG that is certainly worthy of a Nobel Prize. And so what what Russo was saying is that it was a couple of years ago, I guess, that this was kind of petitioned up to the uh, Nobel Committee. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of politics involved. And certainly here the politics at play is that cannabis is illegal. Uh, it's against the uh, United Nations treaty uh, to uh, be involved in cannabis. And so I think there was a lot of knee jerk mm -hmm. reactions on, yeah. you know, yeah, just not focused on anandamide and CB1, but focused on that bad plant <laughs> cannabis, which is part of the whole war on drugs. Yeah. So I think if he would have been alive for another handful of years, he could have certainly been in the running to get it. They don't award. Yeah a um, Nobel posthumously, but you can imagine that, you know, Alan Hallett is still alive. William Devane, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, Roger Perdue is still alive. So some of um, Meshulam's co-workers who were responsible for the discovery and exploitation of the endocannabinoid system could reasonably get the Nobel Prize. I'm sure that they would add Rafi yeah, posthumously yeah, to that. 
Nobel Prize, but I think that it would be really interesting to see whether or not that has legs or not. Because when you look at some of the Nobel Prizes, you say, okay, yeah, yeah you know, yeah, yeah. I guess that was important. I don't really understand the chemistry, but I guess it was super important. Yeah. But when this you look at so the overall, obviously important. I think so, yeah. but painted with the political stripe that cannabis is always painted with, which is, oh, you guys are you know, at a Cheech and Chong movie or seeing a Grateful Dead concert and all you want to do is get high, right? No, I think that there's really a place for herbal medicine and maybe that's the most important lesson. You know, cannabis teaches us a lot of lessons, right? Yeah. It teaches me every day. I learn new things about cannabis every day. And if, if the, I think the main lesson is, is that maybe the monomolecular medicine model of the FDA isn't entirely correct. Have, has the FDA approved life-saving medications? Right. Absolutely. Are people alive today because of FDA approved drugs? Yes, definitely. But is there a place for herbal medicines right. like cannabis and like echinacea and like other uh, herbs that have been used? You know, Chinese medicine I tell you what, I had a uh, condition Now I won't tell you exactly what condition it was, but I was in a lot of pain. And I went to my friend who has a Chinese herbalist who whipped up a little concoction. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that that got rid of my pain immediately, immediately. So there is something to mm -hmm. herbal medication. And maybe that's the most important discovery here is that is that herbal medication has its place yeah. in the modern pharmacopoeia. It's not going to replace prescription drugs. It's not going to save your life if you're dying from certain conditions. Right. But certainly medical cannabis and all cannabis uses medical because we know about its antioxidant action. We know about how it, 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 it acts on the body. So all cannabis use is indeed medical. I think what we need to do is we need to be able to, you know, have both worlds. FDA yeah, approved yeah. drugs with single active ingredients that are targeted for certain diseases. But obviously this this medicinal herbs that we can we can grow ourselves. I mean, yes, yes. my Make God, imagine medicine. that. Do you think the pharmaceutical companies want us to be able to grow our own medicine? <laughs> I'm sure there have been some calculations done of what the uh um, what the market dig might be if people stop taking aspirin as much or Tylenol as much, you know, some of these, I'm thinking more of like the over the counter, very, very common day to day medicines that can actually be easily replaced by medicinal plants. Um, well, Jason, you probably know this cause I think we discussed this in our podcast. Um, uh, acetaminophen, right, which right. is Tylenol. Yep undergoes a hydrolysis in the body and then it conjugates to arachidonic acid to make a cannabinoid called AM404, which is responsible for the analgesic activity. So basically Tylenol yep. is a pro-cannabinoid. And it's, it it's, turns into a and it, cannabinoid in the body. And it's worth mentioning too that so many pharmaceutical drugs and acetaminophen being one of them, it was developed and approved before we knew exactly what it did or how it did what it That's did. That's right. And it's, That's right. and it's important to understand that because when it comes to cannabis, there's often this double standard applied where we, you know, folks will say, well, no, 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 we don't know how it works yet. We don't, we can't, you know, 
we don't know enough. We need to do more research. And it's like, but a, a lot of these other uh, drugs, a lot of over-the-counter drugs, which are known to be very toxic on your liver if you're taking it more than, you know, sparingly, um, you know, a lot of these, these different things, we know that they're more dangerous than herbal cannabis. Um, and we didn't know how they worked <laughs> and they got approved. Um, so it's, I mean, alcohol and cigarettes, you don't have to look any farther than those two yeah. things right there. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and when, when you look at prescription drugs and the way that the opiate crisis has kind yeah. of fleshed yeah. itself out here, you'd say that there are bigger things that are much more dangerous than cannabis. And, and the fact that, you know, uh, opiates, and, and all these other things are toxic and cannabis is not toxic at all. I'm, I'm talking about toxic that, you know, right, you, right. you can die. I think the only way you can die from cannabis is if you break the law and get shot by a cop or something. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it's, it's, it's really ridiculous when you do zoom out and you see, um, you know, like, so the story that we've told today, going back to the 1800s of the roots of some of the stuff to understand, like, what is cannabis doing and why, and to see all of this development and what it's led to in terms of, you know, the, the 2000s in general, this, this, um, well, uh, this, particularly this century that we're in, um, so the first hundred years of the 2000s. I think we're going to look back on this as a, a huge, huge time yeah. of cannabinoid therapeutic development. It's already happening. Um, every pharmaceutical company um, mm -hmm. is developing cannabinoid medicines in some way. And most of this is public. You can go on their websites, right. look at their development timelines, and you will almost certainly find cannabinoids in some form or another being developed. Um, the understanding of the endocannabinoid system and then from that the endocannabinoidome um it changes the way we think about physiology the way we think about medicine yeah. and those effects are going to cascade for a, a very very long time and lead to very interesting new questions about physiology and new discoveries you know like we we're saying there are certainly other systems there's still many orphaned g protein coupled receptors that were still wrestling That's with right. to understand you know what is in we the don't know what they do exactly and, yeah and, we don't know and we, we, we don't know how they interact as a system i mean we kindly we, we only know like 10 percent of the instruments in the orchestra yeah Yet exactly there's this whole orchestra of instruments and we think that just the 10 percent that we know is all there is when there's a whole iceberg of stuff underneath the surface that we don't even know exists yet. Well, and, and maybe some of the Rafi's uh, contributions is his gift to us is because part of his gift is not just what he's done, but his writings and the fact that he has yeah. told the story that the gift is being able to see the frontier, to be able right. to see where things are headed, where they're going, where the mystery lies. He took great care to help ensure that the story is maintained. Um, and I really recommend, if, if anyone doesn't read anything else, um, Rafi's a great chapter in the book Cannabinoids, which is now starting to be an outdated textbook on cannabinoid science. But I think the, late, the last updated edition was in 2014 or something. But he has a chapter in there. Um, I'm trying to remember 
Um, I might have it right here. It's like, it's the very first chapter of, of the 2014 edition where he um, just talks about everything we've discussed today, just the general history of cannabinoid science and and where it's headed. And I really recommend folks, if you have a way to look that up and read it, um, it, it's like Mark said, when you read his writing, you can really get a sense of where his head was at, his, his general passion for the project that he's been working on. Like he, he was aware of his place in the story and he was aware wow. that the story continued after him. And he did everything he could to try to like lay these kind of um, breadcrumbs around to help right. people see that frontier and understand that they have a place in it as well. So um, I don't know. I, that's something that I've kind of gotten out of our discussion today is, you know, it's a real gift to be able to see the frontier. And that's, that's largely because of both his work and his attention to uh, telling the story and helping to prepare the future generations of scientists. Well, I, I think what he says at the end of the movie, the scientist to me is absolutely just fascinating and spot on just exactly where this thing should go, which is that, you know what, there's 8 billion people on the planet. No two people are the same, right? right? And, and each individual person, each individual human reacts differently in different situations, right? Yeah. And and that the way that we react and the mood that we get in and, and how we how we you know, think about things is this manifestation of the endocannabinoid system and, and how like when, when, when my uh, daughter comes back, Hey dad, I'm on the Dean's list. And I right. feel that bliss. I, my body must be making anandamide or God knows what other molecules that are right. acting on similar sets of receptors, but our emotions and the way we react and the way we perceive things is this chemical communication signaling that maybe the endocannabinoid system is just one component of that. And there's 10 other things left to discover. But he he posed to a mathematician. He said, well, there's 8 billion people on the planet. Let's see. There's, there's these five molecules. There's these 10 receptors. Could this actually lead to the diversity that we have in the human race? Right, right. And, 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 and different personality types. And, you know, if you look at your personality versus my personality, in some way, it's an expression of, of emotion. And mm -hmm. those, uh, that emotion comes deep down inside from, you know, compounds acting on receptors and, 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 and smell particularly is like one of those receptors that as soon as you smell something, you'll remember back. Like when right, I right. smell turkey dinner, I think of my grandma's house at, 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 at Thanksgiving, right? So the, the certain smell that you associate with certain things, I mean, to me, there, there's a much larger thing going on yeah. in the human brain. And the endocannabinoid system is kind of like, is showing us the whole saying, Hey man, yeah. on the other side of this and, and how these things are all connected. I, I, I do believe, yeah, his lasting impact will be how he went from the structural elucidation of THC 
to understanding the receptors and axon, to understanding the natural ligand yeah. that the body makes that mimics THC, and and that these systems might be duplicated yeah. uh, throughout the body, and and that there could be interaction and interplay between the two. It's really a a combinatorial mathematics problem that could certainly result in the number of different personalities that we have in all 8 billion humans that walk on earth. So yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about too, what he mentions, which is that in, in the procreation of life itself, you have a lowering of the immune response when the woman gets pregnant with the Mm -hmm. father's sperm, there should be a complete rejection of that, uh, genetic material, but there's not, mm-hmm. and and obviously this must work because there's eight billion right. people that keep being born. <laughs> yeah. But wouldn't it be great if somehow the discoveries of the endocannabinoid system start? We start figuring out a lot of these things, and and, and what ends up happening is that cannabis, which again was the thing that led us here, isn't where we end. Like yes, Rafi said. I agree. You know how you start research, but you never know how it's going to end. Yes, that's a really <laughs> that's a really great way to I think um, cap things off. And I'm I'm really glad you shared that too because that's actually I only my only connection directly um, to Rafael Mashulam was through email. We talked um, through email, and I was very grateful for those interactions. I totally understand what you mean, where it's like an email from Raphael Mishulam shows up in your inbox and it's like, uh, what, wait a minute. And Make sure <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the last things that he communicated to me, uh, was exactly this, his thoughts on the intersection between the endocannabinoid system and personality and subjective experience. Yes. Um, and that's, that's really, his head was really there. Um, um, you know, I talked to, that was in 2020 or so, um, that we had that conversation oh, and, um, so yeah, we're going to miss not having him on planet earth. I tell you what, he's, uh, it was in our Facebook cannabis chemistry group. He joined a few years back and every once in a while he would put a comment out there, you know, yeah. and it's like, Oh my God, Raphael's on Facebook. <laughs> you know, it's like. But he, I think he was in it because he really loved, and I think that's one of the reasons why I think he, he's kind of like, he was happy about me because he saw me as being someone maybe like himself, who was a young chemist who mm-hmm. wanted to learn more about these things and realized that, you know, you can't do it all. And, and there's no one scientist that knows right. everything. Yeah. We're, we're standing all standing on each other's shoulders. Yeah. And just as he was standing on the shoulders of Adams and Woods Vivian Easterfield, I'm standing on Rafi's shoulders and he hasn't pushed me off yet. So <laughs> I'll just continue standing there. But I think Jason, what you're doing with curious about cannabis I mentioned this to you last time. It's important to make sure that we get the facts right because there's a lot of misinformation. I deal with it on a daily basis, misinformed people, people who are blogging, you know, just completely bullshit. And and so it's important to make sure that we get certain things right. And that's why I wanted to do this with you today, just to make sure that everybody knows that, you know, 
he, he wasn't the first to isolate yeah. THC. He wasn't the first to draw the structure of THC, but he was the first to elucidate it from natural material. Yeah. And that's an extremely important contribution that led to all of his work after that. Absolutely. And it's, and it's also important to note that anytime, um, cause I've gotten pushed back before when, when people report, cause like some pretty big, like news articles would report that, that he discovered THC and I was like, no, he didn't discover THC. And that's not a dig at him. And like, he would want you to know that too. You know, right. like he, oh, he yeah. wanted people to understand the contributions of the scientists before him. And so I, I hope that that's clear too. Like this, all of this sort of clarification and everything comes not in any way to reduce what Raphael Meshulam no. did, but to help people see where he fit in that's right. In the story and the fact that if he were here, he would tell you that he would remind you that about all of these researchers that came before and that he just right. he just picked up the puzzle and kept putting pieces together. Um, the important characteristic there, Jason, is something called humility. Yes. Yeah. And it's one of the most endearing qualities that any human could have is to know that it's not about you it's it's about the greater thing and and yeah you take yourself out of it and i think he had a lot of humility and i think that i i do too as well I try every day <laughs> well yeah, this is right this has been great i hope that everyone listening i hope this has given you a little bit of insight into you know not just Raphael mishulam's um work and and contributions but sort of this bigger story of cannabinoid science and then we also spun out into some really important discussions that are relevant to the cannabis industry today um and got into some good technical chemistry too so um <laughs> this has been a good conversation as always so um thanks hey jason re remind them of our deep dive so if, if yes. you folks are interested in learning more about the pre-Meshulam era of cannabis chemistry. I think Jason's been kind enough to put the deep dive up on YouTube. So Yes, yeah. And like I said, it's like three hours long. It's really in-depth. And we still need to get together to do the one on terpenes, too. We wanted to go through oh, yeah, and, and do a yes. deep dive on terpene chemistry. We'll do that yes. sometime a little later in the year. Um, that'll be a really good one, too. So, yeah, go find that. It's available for free on YouTube. I think it's on the podcast as well. So it, it should be on the streaming platforms as well. Although the video I recommend because there's so many visual aids in that That's presentation right. that I, I really particularly recommend the YouTube um, so that you can see the papers because um, the, through the whole presentation, um, you can actually see the references to the quotes and everything. Um, it's just a lot really helpful to digest it all. So yeah, check that out. I went out. back and watched it myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did too, actually, not too long ago. Because um, it reminds me of some stuff, you know. There's a, there's so much information, and um, it's easy to um, get lost in it all. So, yeah, so those of you that, are, that really care about the story and want to understand it, um, from here, go check out that. There's also a presentation on YouTube that I gave to Southern Oregon University a couple years back that... Um, it's sort of in the same vein. It goes through some of the history of cannabinoid science, um, but a little more zoomed out, not so much focused on chemistry, but uh, kind of just the research as a whole. Um, you might like that too. I, I really, I always tell people, if you want to know the history of cannabinoid science, 
Go look at the deep dive that Mark did that's three hours long and go look at the little hour and a half long presentation that I did. And between those two, you get about the best full rounded view of the last 150, 200 years of um, cannabis research that that you could hope for. Um, yeah. And, and if you have any questions, just put them down in the chat, maybe. And I, I could periodically check in to see if there's any. Yes. And that's our way. We also have the uh, Curious About Cannabis Discord. So if any of you are on there or join on there, you can shoot me questions on there and I can um, um, shoot them over to Mark as well. There's, there's yeah, all sorts of ways. If you get any chemistry questions, uh, feel free to send them my way. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All right, everybody. Um, with that, uh, Mark, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, everybody that tuned in for listening. And thanks so much to Raphael Mashulam for everything he did um, to get us here. You know, I I wouldn't be here today uh, doing what I'm doing right now um, if it weren't for his work. So um, would I. much appreciation. And um, with that, everybody, stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you're curious about cannabis like me, then get connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem and let's learn together. Visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to join our learning community on our Discord server and you can participate in regular giveaways, dive into the latest cannabis research, connect with certified Curious About Cannabis educators, hang out in our break room with other curious minds and more. Best of all, it's totally free. Just visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to learn more or click connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS.